Hello, and welcome to the 53rd episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. Hey there, sexy man without a shirt on. Hey, sexy wife sitting there without a shirt on. I have a shirt on. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) What if we did this show nude? You think it would make people uncomfortable listening to us? I don't think it'd make them uncomfortable. They just would be happy that it's just our voices. That's true. And then we're not putting it on YouTube yet. No, we could put clothes on for YouTube. (laughs) That'd be weird, huh? Yeah, that'd be weird. But nobody would ever know. Maybe I should just take my shirt off right now. You should. You guys would never know. Yeah. That's so weird. You're looking better without a shirt on. I'm a pioneer in, in podcasting. See, these are things going through my head. That you're a pioneer? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm pioneering ideas for podcasting. And the first thing that popped in my head, strangely enough, is oh, you should take your shirt off. <laughs> it's really weird. Oh. You always want me to take my shirt off. Uh, well, who doesn't? <laughs> Most other people. Most other people. Okay. Don't want me to take my shirt off. I seriously doubt that. Oh, I'm sure boy. there's at least another person. Oh, boy. Well, let's jump right into a shout out, shall we? Shout. Shout. (laughs) Let it all out. You remember that song? Of course. All right. This is from Chris Jess Jake, and it's just a good old Jersey gal. Are those three different people? It's probably the kids. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's probably kids' names. Gotcha. Okay. Always looking for a good podcast to listen to driving to and from work. You guys sparked my interest. Good research and a good sense of humor. Definitely not boring. We'll definitely keep listening. There's a few interesting cases that happened in New Jersey. Maybe I'll get to hear you cover one. Yes, my dear. New Jersey is full of some crazy. I was going to say, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Jersey. There is. I mean, Jersey Shores, (laughs) Jersey Boys. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's up and coming. I've heard. Up and coming or just kind of stagnant? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your review. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And for those of you that don't know, we are not actually under the true crime category of Apple Podcasts. We are actually under comedy. And we did that for a reason, but it's also hard to find us. So if you would be so kind and leave us Even just five stars, a review would be great. A thumbs up. A thumbs up. Anything, that would be awesome because it really helps people find us. Right. Because we are not under the true crime category. I wish they did true crime comedy, but I guess those don't really, those aren't supposed to mesh. Well, it is true crime, but we're trying to spin it into something entertaining. Right. And... Finding some humor. I mean, obviously, the content isn't really funny. No, it's not funny. But if we can make fun of these a-holes who kill their spouse, let's do it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we can throw in some marriage humor and kid kid humor, then there you go. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Definitely. All right, Daniel, you got some factoids for me? All right. I got some something that's really going to help everyone out a lot. 
please. Let's do it. We need some help. All right, here we go. We're going to go over medieval dating and tips. Oh, <laughs> oh yay. <laughs> All right, here we go. 12th century author Andreas Capellanus, or I think it's pronounced Capelanus. <laughs> Quote, love is an inborn suffering proceeding from the sight and immoderate thought upon the beauty of the other sex. Oh. I don't know what he just said, but it sounds fantastic. I should get that tattooed along the bottom of my back like a tramp stamp. What if it rewinds around to the front? Because it's a really long quote. Like the love handles? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The love shanks. We'll see. (laughs) The shanks. So during the medieval period, um, blonde-haired women were viewed as the height of attraction. Boo. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, you know, that not everyone. M- many medieval queens were pictured with blonde hair. However, of course, most women were not fair-haired, right? That's what they called them back then, fair-haired. Well, all they needed to do was lift up their skirt. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Have you seen medieval dress, though, on women? Well, I'm going to discuss that. It, it wasn't uh, as simple as lifting up a skirt. No, it wasn't. No. It was not. You're right. And I don't think you'd want to see that. Mm, nope. Since they weren't fair-haired, um, it's okay. If you're not blessed to be a blonde bombshell, don't fret. Here are some lovely tips. <laughs> women would try and make their hair blonder by using saffron, which is a spice. It has kind of a sweet floral taste. Have you heard of saffron? Yeah, you use it when you cook sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) Have I used saffron? I don't know. Your dad does, though. Probably. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever used saffron. Anyway, stale sheep's urine. Okay, these were all supposed to lighten the hair? Correct. Um, Onion skins or by spending a lot of time in the sun, of course. Right. I'm a former stylist. Right, which is why I thought you could help (laughs) speak to this issue. So the sheep's urine... Um, what else was it? Onions, onion skins, onion skins all that stuff. Sun. Right. But all of that was applied to the hair shaft and then they were out in the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. So an oniony, stale sheep's urine, hair, matted hair smell. Delicious. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> um, oh, and a high forehead is very sexy so make sure you Mm -hmm. shave pluck or burn away all that excess hair so you have a really high forehead right have you ever seen those paintings of the medieval kings and uh, i mean queens absolutely they had you know five inch foreheads yeah it wasn't a forehead it was a five head Wow. You've never heard that before? Probably, but that's fantastic. Oh, I'm glad you I got thought you. of it. I should have written that down. I got I you. I didn't. Mm. Um, of course, makeup is important, right? It very much is. Uh, but don't wear too much or you will look like a hussy. You mm. don't want to look like a hussy. Plus, mm. you Do might, we? well, you <laughs> might tempt a married man to sleep with you. That's and, all it takes? And then if he did... It would be all your fault, of course, because yeah. you attracted him. Not That's his right. fault. It's your fault. Because he is the weaker sex. And it's the medieval <laughs> times. Eye makeup is not in fashion. But if you really want to, you can add some drops of belladonna, which is deadly nightshade, to your pupils to dilate them. Yes, I was reading about belladonna when I did the whole nightshade 
the woman who poisoned one of her husbands right. in his tea. And so I was learning about nightshade and it said belladonna. But belladonna is also used in love potions. Number nine. <laughs> I think. Or eight. It's one of those. Love potion number nine. Um, make sure you pop on some rouge made some made from ground up plants. And maybe make uh Make your lips a little bit of a better color by staining them with crushed berries. That would help. That's kind of sexy. Or rub lemon juice on them. Oh, okay. Now, eye makeup. So no eyeshadow or mascara. That was that not. That kind of thing. That wasn't in. I would die without mascara. That's well, you, the only. You might die with Belladonna. Well, Belladonna's for your eyeballs. Right, to make the pupils dilate. Right. So then the and dilated... And to make them whiter, too. And to make your pupils dilated would then what? Make you look sexier? I guess so, or high or scared, or huh. like you just walked out of a dark room. Like, oh. how is that sexy? Oh, I'm so frightened. <laughs> I'm frightened by your large member. Oh, and <laughs> forget the large member. Don't skip ahead. Oh. I'm just going to talk about that. Okay. Oh, and forget the fake tan bottles. Pale is in. That's so true. So the Be more pale, the better. Well, yeah, because that made you seem more affluent. Because if you were dark, that meant that you worked in the fields. Would you stop skipping ahead? Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. Okay. I'm going to sit well, here I can't. and shut up. So what I, what I was going to say was... Plus, it shows that you don't spend your day toiling in the fields like the peasants. You can tell that I've been to a lot of castles in my day. You're kind of you're kind of like a medieval times expert. Thank you, Grandma in heaven. She told me all that stuff. <laughs> she was very much into that. Oh, okay. Here we go. This is what you were bringing up about male members. Mm. Male membership. Okay. So men or blokes, right? Back then they were called blokes. Blokes. I like it. They didn't get to avoid the fashion. For medieval men, it was just as important, if not more important, to take care of their appearance. Unlike the women who wore like big, thick, bulky clothing that covered basically their entire body, men would wear tight trousers <laughs> that accentuated their calves and other parts of their body. Right, and what was that thing called that they used to put in? A cod piece. <laughs> I love that. I didn't write that down. I just remember that. Yeah. As an, anyway. Yeah, to make it look bigger. I took a picture of, of kind of a classic example of this, and, and this is an old, old painting from the 14th century, and oh, maybe good. you can add it to the show notes and stuff. No, I'll put it on Instagram. And it's a picture of this highfalutin dude trying to like woo three women Ooh. and he's wearing tights with this huge member outline Ooh! in his like was it going down the inside of his thigh almost to his knee yeah no Dang. no it's just a big bulge oh like what ballerinos wear i don't know what a ballerina i know what a ballerina is no a ballerino is a male ballerina and they have those cod pieces in oh not a cup i guess it's kind of a cup Yes. So a fake penis. <laughs> huh. Interesting. No, it's like a, you know, what you wear for baseball. Gotcha. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. A man would wear a tunic with a doublet on top and a cloak. So he's basically wearing super tight pants and then this big bulky, you know, whole top situation. Mm, so like a potato, like Pretty Mr. Much. Potato Head. 
tights were all the rage. For men. For men. Mm -hmm. If you were of high status, you would, of course, also wear a sword. Mm. Because nothing turns on a woman more than a dude in tights with a sword. Definitely. And then, of course, now you're off to attract some sexy ladies. Where do you go? You go to a medieval feast. Oh, And this is where you get to show off all this work. So I'm picturing a feast in a castle with, like, pigs. On a spit. On a spit. Absolutely. Roast beef. Sure. Apples. A lot of apples. Grapes. Just men lounging around, women lounging around. Yeah, some haggis. That's in Scotland. Oh, we're not in Scotland. Okay. But we can we can pretend. Yeah. Our fantas- if your fantasy is Scottish medieval times dating, Definitely. that's very specific. It very much is, actually. Doing it on hay in <laughs> where you keep all the livestock. Rolling in the hay? Yeah, in Scotland. That is a fantasy of mine. Wow. All right. It's <laughs> interesting. A <laughs> lot, lot of hay. A lot of hay. So if you come out of the barn, you have hay all stuck in your hair. Everyone pretty much knows what happened. Definitely. Uh-huh. Um, there was a book. If you were a young noblewoman looking to score yourself a husband... This was a 14th century book. It's called The Book of the Knight of Latour Laundry. How was knight spelled? K-I-G-H-T. Okay. K-N- um, K-N-I-G-H-T, I'm sorry. Okay, so like a knight in shining armor. Correct. Oh. Not like opposite of day. Got it. Um, it was composed in France, and it would be the one you'd want. I'm about to order it on Amazon. All right, here we go. Ready? This is instructions for the ladies. Be meek, well-taught, firm in a state, behaving and manners, soft and easy in speech (laughs) and in answer, courteous and gentle. For many have lost her marriage by too much discovering. Okay, that that sounds dumb. The hell did I write? (laughs) You can't read your own writing. For many have lost her marriage by too much discovering himself and have many words. I don't know. Who cares? Basically, even once you have a husband, it is easy to lose his love. This book also recounts a wife who had become jealous whenever her husband spoke to other women. After one encounter, the wife got into a fight with a woman who broke her nose. The wife's nose was permanently crooked thereafter and her husband might never find it in his heart to love her heartily as he did before. Oh, my gosh. Women beating up women again over a man. That is so stupid. And then he took other women, and thus she lost his love through her jealousy and folly. Oh, my gosh. She got her nose broken. Oh, so she's no longer attracted. Now he's not attracted to her anymore, so now he looks for other women. So... To recap, all right. to kind of close this out, bottom line is, so ladies, to win a man of your choice, you must dress well, look presentable, with elegant clothes, nice hair, jewels, makeup. What? But not too much, in case this puts across a negative portrayal of yourself. You must also make sure not to get too jealous or to be too much of a party animal, but still be beautiful. Kind, entertaining, and intelligent enough to attract a man. Boring. This is a lot of work. It's too much work. Who cares? Does he like you? Yes. Does he want to see you naked? 
Yes. Okay. Match made in heaven. Basically, back then, if you're loaded, you're going to find a husband quickly. If you got a lot of money. Well, that's how I got you. Same with men. If you look good and you got a lot of money, you can get away with a lot more scandalous behavior. Just remember, you got to put on those tights. And the cod piece. And the cod piece. I shop at Walmart for my clothes. Is that attractive? Absolutely it is. (laughs) It's attractive to you. (laughs) Hey, Walmart has sexy lingerie. Do they? I don't buy sexy lingerie. It's a waste of money. See, then there's that. (laughs) You're just going to take it off. (laughs) That's it. Like, that looks good, and I'll take it off. (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) The point is... If you're royalty, you can do whatever the hell you want. You can have affairs. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. That's the bottom line. Okay. Same with today. But the women were also having affairs too. You think so? Daniel, yes. These women were hitting it with as many stable boys as they possibly could. They were getting theirs, man. Well, the men were all running around in tights and looking for fights and stuff. Yeah. Eating, Eating like Henry VIII ate himself to death. I could see with that. all those wives. Yep. Yeah, that guy. Ooh. So anyway, medieval dating. There you go. You're welcome. Thank you. That was awesome. And I am so glad that. Well, as of right now, I don't ever have to date ever again. Me neither. That's too much work. Dating is miserable, especially right now. I didn't never just make out with anybody because I was scared to death I was going to get mono or something. Right. Or strep throat. Yeah. I would not be a good dater right now. You so. have a anti-oral fixation <laughs> is what it sounds like to me. I have a really low Because everything you've reflex. mentioned is, is all about <laughs> like mouth, throat. Oh, so. because I can't take a lot in my mouth. <laughs> oh, Daniel. God. No, what I mean is you're worried about that like, getting sick. I am. But, but, you know, orally sick. I'm. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for the factoids, Daniel. Uh, see, <laughs> brings out the worst in us. That's you're why. You're welcome. You're, yeah. That's why you're welcome. <laughs> Hey everyone, my name is Jess, and I'm the co-host of a weekly true crime podcast called Wife of Crime. Every week, I tell my husband one of my favorite true crime stories, and he reacts to them. Sometimes, I get mad at him. You're going to really regret all of this judginess that you're doing right now once I tell you this story, because you're being very judgmental. Obviously, something bad's going to happen. She's making a lot of bad decisions. Well, you're being very judgmental. Stop. And sometimes, he makes really weird noises. Ah! He now thinks that he's an FBI profiler. Yeah. How about that? Rust a profile of placebo effect. <laughs> but most of the time, he just has really funny color commentary. Wow, so he's sitting in his human leather chair, eating fruity pebbles out of a skull. <laughs> yeah. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on Instagram at Wife of Crime Pod. Hey, DMAC, you ready for my case? I'm ready. Smother me with it. (laughs) Okay. This is the marriage of Alan and Betty Gore. Oh, okay. Alan and Betty. On the evening of Friday, June 13th, 1980, 33-year-old Alan Gore was sitting in his hotel room at the Ramada Inn in St. Paul, Minnesota. 
He had tried calling his wife of over 10 years, Betty Gore, before he and his colleagues had boarded their flight in Texas around 4.30 p.m., but there had been no answer. Maybe 30-year-old Betty had taken their two daughters out for an early evening walk around their middle-class neighborhood in the bedroom community of Wiley, Texas, only 20 miles from Dallas. I know where that is. Yeah. Alan would call her again as soon as he could. Alan knew that Betty hated when he traveled for business and hated being alone at night, but the sound of his voice always reassured Betty. Alan had begun traveling again since quitting his job with Rockwell International to join a tiny but up-and-coming company called ECS Telecommunications. Okay, so first of all, this is Friday the 13th. You are so on it, and yes. his last name is Gore, so basically it writes itself. So on a newspaper headline or news headline, it's going to say something to the effect of, the gory details of gore on Friday the 13th or something like oh, that. Oh, look at you. I thought you were going to say, because his name is Alan Gore. What is a nickname for Alan? Alan? I have no I don't know. Al Gore. Oh, my gosh. I missed that completely. <laughs> you did. I wow, did not I think you were going to miss that. Yeah, he invented the internet. Al Gore? Yeah, he, he invented the internet. Oh, oh boy. I said he did. We were one year old. Wowzers. We were one. That's wild. Wiley, Texas. I looked at houses for sale there because for a hot minute, we were thinking about moving to Texas. That was a long time ago. It was. It was many years ago. Yeah. We were just toying the idea and looking at homes. Just kids looking at things. Yeah. Looking at homes for sale and outside of Dallas. While sitting on the bed in his hotel room, Alan dialed the house phone and let it ring 15 times, but still no answer from Betty. Had Alan missed something? Had Betty told him she would be gone for the day? No. Betty hated being out past dark, and it was already after 8 p.m. Betty should be home putting their two daughters to bed for the night. Alan decided to call their neighbor Richard. Richard agreed to walk next door and check on Betty. Richard walked across the wet lawn and up to the Gore's front door. He rang the doorbell and waited. No answer. He knocked. Still no answer. Having left his small children home alone, his wife was playing bunko or something like that. Sure. So he was, you know, watching his kids. Richard couldn't wait any longer and ran back to his house. He picked up the receiver and told Alan that there was no answer. Alan thanked Richard and hung up. Alan was now worried. Without thinking, he called the home of their good friends, the Montgomerys. The wife, Candy Montgomery, answered the phone after one ring. Candy, this is Alan. Have you seen Betty? Oh, Alan, where are you? I'm in Minnesota on a business trip. I've been trying to get Betty, but no one answers, and I thought you might have talked to her today. I saw her this morning when I went to get the name of the oldest daughter of the Gores. I'm not going to say her name, of gotcha. course. So she went over to get her swimsuit. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah, happens. Did Betty seem all right? She was fine. She did act like she was in a hurry for me to leave. Do you know where she might be? Asked Alan. Maybe she went to a friend's, said Candy. No, she wouldn't go out this late. It scares her. Well, I'm sure there's nothing wrong. 
Alan then talked to his six-year-old daughter, and the little girl couldn't remember if her mom had said anything about going out for the evening. Candy got back on the line and offered to call the local hospitals or drive over to the Gore home, which was only a few miles from the Montgomery residence in Lucas, Texas. Alan told her that wouldn't be necessary. He would call all of his neighbors. When you look at a map of Texas and you look at Dallas, all of these areas that I'm going to talk about are northeast of Dallas. So they're all little bedroom communities. Usually people would work in Dallas, but they lived outside of Dallas. So we're talking about Plano, McKinney. Yep. Wiley, Lucas, all these little bedroom communities. Now, if you look at it, they're all homes and there's basically, it's like LA. There's no right, no separating line. No. You just keep driving and all of a sudden you're no longer in one town, you're in a different town. But right. there's no wide open space and then all of a sudden you come into a new town. Yeah, and they're just Targets, Applebee's, Walmart's. Ross's, TJ Maxx, everything we got here. <laughs> which is, yeah, which you need all that. <laughs> you do. Starbucks on every corner. <laughs> a lot of Starbucks. A lot of Starbucks. Oh, I got to move. You should move. <laughs> okay. Last I checked, Melissa's butt is doing better for all of you that are concerned. <laughs> um, but she's still sore. So. Yes. it's um, It's been a process. Mm-hmm. She is sitting cheek to cheek. No. I'm sitting on one cheek at a time. That's what I mean. Oh, okay. It's like dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, boy. Except for not. Alan left the room and headed down to dinner to meet his colleagues at the hotel's restaurant around 9 p.m. He was too worried to eat and went back up to his room around 10 p.m. Alan called the house again and still no answer. He called his neighbor Richard again and asked him to check the garage and see if Betty's car was there. Richard went out to his side yard and looked over the fence into the direction of the Gore's garage, which was located at the back of the house. He saw that the garage door was open and the light was on, but only Alan's car was in the garage, which is weird. Yeah, that's weird. Alan's next call was to the Plano Hospital. No one by the name of Betty Gore had checked in. He called the Wiley police. They'd never heard of her either. Alan called Candy and told her about the garage. Candy once again offering to drive over to the house, but Alan assured Candy that he would call his neighbors. Alan called Richard again, and this time his voice was desperate. Richard, I'm really worried about her. Please go over there and check all the doors and the garage again. If she had to leave in a hurry, maybe she left a note somewhere. Do people do that? Leave notes? I guess back they in the used day. to. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't text or anything, so That's you true. would leave notes on the, you know, on the door or on the refrigerator. I was here. Richard went through the back fence and into the alleyway. This time, he saw the two vehicles in the garage. The Volkswagen Rabbit that Betty drove was pulled up so far into the garage that he hadn't been able to see it from where he had been standing before. Oh, okay. Right. So all the cars are there. All the cars are there. Gotcha. And the garage door is open and the light is on. Huh. Richard walked into the garage and tried to open the back door that led into the utility room, but it was locked. He left and went back home. Richard picked up the phone receiver. Something's wrong, Alan. I don't know what, but something's wrong. Both cars are there and the lights are on, but nobody answers. Richard, I want you to go and get in that house any way you can. 
Okay, Alan, I guess so. Why don't I just call the police? I don't know. That's a great question. Right? I mean. Yeah. I mean, he'd already called the police. So why didn't they just come out there? They're a small town. They're not super busy. They could go out there and make a hospitality check, I guess. Yeah. Richard copied down the number to Alan's hotel. Now, Richard remembered that he might be able to get inside the Gore home with his realtor keys. Maybe he had one that fit. So he had been the Gore's realtor three years before when they bought that house. Okay. So how would he have keys to the house, though? Because realtors back in the day used to just have this huge silver key ring filled with all different kinds of keys that would fit oh, into different locks. So they didn't have like a little, a little lockbox that hung like no. they do now. No, they just then. had these master keys that should open up almost every door. Huh. Yeah. Could see where that could become problematic. Alan then phoned their neighbor across the alley, Jerry. Jerry, something is wrong over at my house. I've been trying to get Betty, but nobody answers. The lights are on and the doors are locked. Would you get a flashlight and go over there and see what you can find out? Jerry agreed and walked over to the Gore's house. He pounded loudly on the utility room door and there was no answer. Jerry then walked around into the backyard. He tried to force open the sliding glass door, but it wouldn't budge. Jerry walked around to the front of the house and peered in the windows. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. He rang the doorbell, but still no answer. Jerry walked back home and told Alan that the lights were all on, but he couldn't see anything wrong. So what about Richard? He's in his house trying to get find all of his keys. So he's sending a, another person to go do what he just asked Richard to do. Well, no, he asked Richard to get in there any possible way. And right. then he's like, well, let me call Jerry who lives behind me okay. and see if he can go over there. Okay. I would just start gathering neighbors. Like, can you please just go over there? One of you just go over there and right. try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Jerry, there is definitely something wrong. Get in that house and see what's wrong. Take the windows off. Force the doors, whatever it takes. Jerry became frightened and did not feel safe going over to the house alone. He called his friend Lester, who lived two doors down from the Gores, and insisted that he come with him. Two minutes later, both men were standing in the alley looking at the Gore residence. Just as they were about to walk up, Richard came out into the alley carrying a silver ring full of keys. So now we have three men. Gotcha. And a baby. Yeah. What the hell's going on, said Jerry. I don't know, said Richard. The three men made their way into the garage and Richard began trying the keys in the utility door. None were working. Jerry and Lester went to the sliding door and were trying to force it open again, but it wouldn't budge. With no luck, the neighbors walked back to the front of the house where Jerry and Lester began trying to pry open the large dining room window while Richard took his keys to the front door lock. He inserted the first key and realized that the door was not locked. That door had been unlocked the entire time. Oh, my gosh. Richard shouted to the other two men, this is not locked. Jerry and Lester joined Richard on the porch. Richard opened the door and poked his head inside. Betty, he called. Betty? Annoyed, Lester pushed open the door and the three men walked into the foyer. I'm sorry, Lester is the badass of this story. Yeah, don't be beating around the bush, just go in. (laughs) 
There was a den to the right and a guest bathroom to the left. All the hall doors were closed. Lester opened the first door and switched on the light. A child's undisturbed bedroom. Meanwhile, Jerry had peered into the guest bathroom and on the floor tile he saw a dark red substance. Lester continued down the hallway with Richard behind him. (laughs) Richard's a little sissy pants. (laughs) Lester opened the second door and flipped on the light. Lester yelled out, Oh my God, the baby. Sitting in her crib was the Gore's youngest daughter. The 11-month-old's poor face was red and stained with tears. Her hair was wet and matted, but she was alive. She began to cry, but her voice was hoarse and strained. This sweet baby had obviously been in her crib all day and crying out for anyone to hear her. Oh, poor thing. Richard gathered her into his arms and ran home to call the police. Yeah. Lester and Jerry continued their search for Betty. They opened the master bedroom door and flipped on the light. Nothing. The men walked back towards the other side of the house. The living room, the dining room, and kitchen were all empty and undisturbed. But the one thing they finally realized was a pungent smell wafting through the air, and the stronger the smell got as the men neared the utility room. Damn it. Finally, the utility room. (laughs) Finally, Lester made his way through the kitchen and to that utility room door. He opened that door and saw blood. Yep. Dark red, almost black. Thick, sticky blood. He closed the door and shouted, Oh my God, don't go any further. She's dead. But Lester had not seen a body, only blood. Lester moved away from the door, so Jerry moved in, cracked the door open himself, and peered in. He saw the body. Jerry quickly shut the door and said, She's blown her head off. Oh, damn. Lester went over to the phone to call the police, but just as he was about to pick up the receiver, the phone rang. Lester picked it up. Hello, he said. This is Alan. What did you find? Jerry grabbed the phone. I'm afraid it's not good, but don't worry. The little one is fine. What about Betty, said Alan. I'm sorry, Alan, said Jerry. It looks like she's been shot. How? We don't have a gun. I wish there was something else I could say, Alan. We'll stay here and wait for the police. Okay, thanks, Jerry. That's a weird thing for him to say. And they hung up the phone. Which part? Well, saying, okay, he says, it looks like she's been shot. And he goes, how? We don't have a gun. Well, yeah. I mean, if she was shot, why would she be shot by your own gun? Because his immediate thought was that she had done it to herself. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, he didn't say it looks like she killed herself or shot herself, then he could say, oh, well, we don't have a gun. Right. But when I talk more about Betty and Al's, Alan's marriage, you will see why he said that. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Around 11.30 p.m., Alan's next call was back to the Montgomery's. Candy picked up immediately to the disappointment of her husband, Pat, since they had just started an adult aerobics class. Oh, poor Pat. Oh, Pat, I'm sorry. See, and now, you know, it's hard to get back into it. Now it's not hard. Right, which (laughs) makes it difficult. (laughs) Sorry, let's get serious. This is serious. This is not funny. Candy, Alan said, I have some bad news. Betty is dead. Oh, Alan, what happened? It looks like she's been shot. 
The neighbors found her. Okay, so at that point, he said it looks like she's been shot. Do you think they were calm? No, but it's not like we have tape recordings of these conversations. Should we pretend? Nope, did you hear my shoes? Sound like I tooted. Should we pretend what? Well, we should, like, act out their voices or something. No. No? That's kind of morbid. All right. (laughs) Only when we're making fun of them, but we can't make fun of them right now. No, no, I'm not making fun of them. Okay. Alan went on to tell Candy that Betty had been upset lately, and he knew something had been bothering her. Betty was two weeks late and thought she might be pregnant again. But he never thought she would hurt herself. He then asked Candy if they would keep their daughter for a while and not to tell her about her mom. Alan wanted to tell her. So he says to Candy, Betty's dead. It looks like she's been shot. But then in his mind, he's racing back thinking, well, maybe she could have done this to herself. Right. I'm just clarifying. Is he coming home? Yes. Just wait. Okay. Sorry. Police arrived on the scene within minutes. The utility room was 12 feet long and 6 feet wide. There was a washer and dryer, a freezer, and one small cabinet, all covered in dark red blood splatter. Betty was face up and her legs were pointed out towards the back of the room. She was dressed in a yellow blouse and tight red denim pants. Both were streaked with blood. Betty's left arm was almost completely severed at the elbow. Whoa. The entire right side of Betty's face was gone leaving a black hole where her right eye used to be. Oh, jeez. Near Betty's head, hastily concealed, was the heavy wooden handle of a three-foot-long axe. What? Betty had been savagely beaten and murdered with an axe. Okay, so no gun. They just presumed it was gun. They presumed it was a gun. Gotcha. The rest of the Gore home was as it should have been. The Dallas Morning newspaper opened on the kitchen table, surrounded by breakfast dishes. But police did also find wet hair in the guest bathroom shower drain, a half a fingernail on the living room rug, a bloody thumbprint on the freezer in the utility room, and small bloody footprints leading out of the utility room and into that guest bathroom. But why would someone murder Betty in such horrific fashion and leave her baby daughter untouched and unattended for hours? Like any good murder investigation, suspicion immediately fell on Betty's husband, Alan. Of course, because it's always the husband. It's always the husband. That's a great podcast, by the way. Unless it's not. Alan was interviewed the next morning after returning from St. Paul. When Alan arrived at the house, he still was under the assumption that she had been shot. Oh. He was never told that she was killed by an axe until that moment that he arrived home. And they said he completely turned white and they had to find him a chair because he almost passed out. Once he found out. Once he found out it was an axe, that his wife was brutally murdered with an axe. Damn. Alan told investigators that he and Betty had a good marriage, and they were getting ready to leave for a seven-day European vacation that next week. Kind of a second honeymoon. And their first trip away together in four years. Alan told them that the last time he had seen Betty was around 8 a.m. that morning. She had the baby on her hip, and they were waving goodbye. 
Alan had promised to phone Betty from the airport before his plane took off, but there had been no answer. Alan was asked if Betty was planning to see anyone that day. Alan answered that he knew their friend Candy Montgomery had been to the house to pick up their oldest daughter's bathing suit that morning. Investigators then asked Alan if there had been any affairs, to which he answered no. Alan and Betty met in the fall of 1968 at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, near where both of them had grown up. Alan was a senior and a teacher's assistant in Betty's freshman math class. They had caught eyes right away, but 21-year-old Alan had been too shy to even talk to beautiful 18-year-old Betty. So Betty made the first move. She requested special math tutoring from Alan. Oh. Ooh, show me your numbers, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> they began dating soon after. Betty was Alan's first serious girlfriend. Oh, isn't that sweet? Yep, young love. When Betty brought him home to meet her family and friends, they were a little shocked by Betty's choice. Betty was quite a catch. She was smart, funny, social, and very attractive. But Alan was kind of a nerd. He wore horn-rimmed glasses. That's oh. what I wear. Did it sound like I said whore-rimmed glasses or horn-rimmed glasses? Both. Okay. I don't know. They were horn-rimmed glasses. Gotcha. And already showed the signs of a receding hairline. Alan was skinny and small and plain. He was awkwardly quiet and shy and had a hard time carrying on a conversation. But Betty adored him. Clearly. On May 16, 1969, a few days after Alan graduated from college with a major in business and math, he put a ring on Betty's finger. She happily accepted. See, there's somebody for everyone. There is. So now they were planning on getting married. The couple was married on January 25th, 1970 in Norwich Methodist Church. While Alan was in the beginning of graduate school at Kansas State University, and Betty had also transferred there so oh. they could be together. Okay. Alan, bored with statistics, decided to go into the field of computer analysis. Because... I mean, I get that. Like, statistics can get boring. Oh, I can't even imagine. I mean, and then you enter the exciting world of computer analysis. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Hold on to your horses. We're getting into oh, computer oh, analysis. It's, it's like it's like skydiving compared <laughs> to statistic. Without a parachute. That's hilarious. <laughs> what, what I said? No, like that he went from oh. that he went from freaking <laughs> statistics into computer analysis because he was bored with statistics. Like, I thought you were giving me a compliment, telling me that I was hilarious. You're hilarious. But, okay. After graduating, the Gores moved around a bit. Candy even admitting to an affair while they lived in New Mexico, but Alan did forgive her. Now, at that time in their life, they were newly married, and Alan had gotten a job where he had to travel a lot for work. He'd even gone to Switzerland for six weeks on a job. She had needs. She did. She, she had, had needs. needs. She was young, active, um, a lot of aerobics classes. Yeah. You know? I think she was mad at him, and I think the only way she could get to him was by sleeping with somebody else. Clearly. Out of anger. But, you know, angry sex is the best sex is what they say. I, I guess so. I don't yeah. know. That sounds awful to me. Yeah. 
Betty graduated from college with her teaching degree, and the Gores finally settled in Plano, Texas. It always sounds like plain old Texas, but it's Plano, Texas. That's what it's from. Oh, really? No. Oh. Oh, my. (laughs) Daniel. (laughs) Betty could only find work as a substitute teacher for the 1973 through 74 school year. By the end of 1973, though, Betty was pregnant with the couple's first daughter. She had a very difficult pregnancy and fell into a deep depression. After their daughter was born in the summer of 74, Betty was hired on as a second grade teacher at a local Plano elementary school. They called it plain old elementary school. (laughs) The Gores had their jobs, a three-bedroom house, a new baby, and had found a church. Everything was going as planned, but Betty was not happy. No, because... She married a dork. (laughs) Poor guy, right? Oh, She hated her job, and Alan was still traveling all the time for work, leaving her alone with a baby. And Alan was getting very involved in their church. He was put on committees and even given or elected into positions within that church. Right. Like big positions in the church, which meant he would be gone most nights during the week. Oh, boy. By the fall of 1974, Betty had been diagnosed with, quote unquote, heavy child syndrome. What the hell is that? Which we now call postpartum depression or PPD. Okay, I'm sorry. But her doctor called it heavy child syndrome. I've never heard that before. (laughs) I mean, I guess if your kids eat too much garbage, they could potentially have heavy child syndrome. And then you got to pick them up and then it hurts your back. Right. And then that starts a whole syndrome. Right. right? And then you tell them they're heavy and then you're the bad person. Right. Then you're the jerk. In the summer of 1975, Betty was not asked to return to her teaching position. Oh. They didn't like her very much. She was very strict, and the parents didn't like her. Her co-teachers didn't like her. Wow. Yeah, so she was just not allowed to come back. She started out as like, okay, the super hot chick that Mm -hmm. has everything Mm -hmm. going for married on paper, it's like, oh, there's this guy, and he's kind of not attractive, and he's kind of a nerd, and he's losing his hair, and, you know, stuff like that. Right. The stereotype. But in the end, she's actually the one that's kind of a jerk. Yeah, I think oh, a but. lot of it ended up having to do with depression. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. It really changed her whole entire personality. And she probably became somebody that she didn't even like. Yeah. Which is really sad. Over the next two years, Alan was traveling even more, and Betty would substitute teach when she could, but was eventually hired on as a sixth-grade teacher in Wiley, Texas. By February of 1977, Alan insisted that he be assigned a position at work that would have him exclusively working out of the Dallas office. He was offered a new position, and the Gores sold their home in Plano and moved to this house in Wiley. Gotcha. And so Betty was closer to where she worked. Cool. Betty moved from sixth grade to fifth grade, and they had found a new church. There you go. I think fifth grade is way harder than sixth grade. (laughs) Teaching fifth grade is way harder than teaching sixth grade. (laughs) I don't know how people teach any grades. Oh, gosh. I Props to you teachers, man. Yeah. Their new church was the Methodist Church of Lucas. 
which was located which was located in Lucas, Texas. Gotcha. Which is right next to Wiley, Texas. Sure. Everything just kind of intermingles. Yeah. Life was better than ever, except for their sex life. Oh. According to Alan, their sex life was very mechanical and planned, only getting it on the regular when the couple was quote unquote family planning. It's family planning. That means you're only having sex when your wife is ovulating. You mean trying to get pregnant? Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're yeah. trying to have more kids. Yeah. Trying to so have kids. They only were bumping uglies on the regular gotcha. when they were trying to make a baby. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. Which in July of 79, family planning brought the Gores a new baby daughter. Oh, okay. But the marriage became more distant. A few months after the baby was born, Alan and Betty decided to go away for a weekend retreat, a program called Marriage Encounter. Fun. Have you ever heard of this before? No. I've heard of this before. Do you mean specifically? Yeah. It's, Marriage Encounter? It's called Marriage Encounter. No. And fun fact, our first fun fact oh, good, of the episode, right. Dan and Betty Broderick did this program too. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And look what happened to them. Yeah, everything turned worked, out well for their well. marriage. This is a great selling point <laughs> for uh, marriage retreats. Exactly. Well, marriage encounter. I'm sorry, marriage encounter. Yeah, this is what the program it's is called. Re- but it's a retreat, a weekend retreat. It is retreat. a weekend retreat, Yes. According to their website, Marriage Encounter is a weekend designed to help married couples communicate more intimately with one another in order to deepen and enrich their relationship. Gotcha. What I gather from my five-minute in-depth research mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. this is that you sit in a hotel ballroom. And Daniel, what do you always say about a hotel ballroom? Ah, no good ever comes from anything that happens at a hotel ballroom. Including marriage. Retreats. Encounters. (laughs) Including, you're talking about like seminars and stuff like that when you say that. Yes. Get rich quick seminars and hotel ballrooms. Run. Run run away. (laughs) Save your money. So you sit in a hotel ballroom and listen to different presentations given by other married couples who probably think very highly of themselves. Sure. Just saying. Sure. And a priest. Of course. And so you listen to them talk about communication and intimacy, which having a priest talk to you about intimacy, that just, that, I don't think that kind of goes together, right? If the priest is married, then- Priests can't get married. They're then Catholic. Then it would be okay. Priest, but, priests are celibate. They're Catholic. They're so, celibate. So a priest officially, just the name priest, automatically means Catholic priest. Yes, You don't have a priest in any other religion. I'm not Catholic, so I don't know. No, I know. Okay. No. Gotcha. Okay. So, yes, that would be odd in my opinion, which doesn't mean much. No, your opinion doesn't mean much. How do you, yes. How do you get, how do you get marriage advice, intimacy advice? From a priest. From a Catholic priest. I mean, the jokes kind of write themselves, so I'm not going to say them. (laughs) Because, of course, you know, we could go down that road. Okay, so then after you hear these presentations, right. you go back to your hotel room for personal sharing using techniques you've acquired from each presentation. Okay, so is this like what we talked about was in the last episode or the one before? I don't remember. With um, aerobic positions? 
No, so no, this even... is just about communication. Because that would be funny if you had a Catholic priest doing a tutorial on stage. <laughs> this going, is how right, you do the cowgirl pose. This is the, this is the wheelbarrow twist. Oh. And um, yeah. Oh, yes. Now, see, I was thinking, well, this might be fun for us to go to. And then I remember that we are very immature and we would laugh the entire time. Oh, People were trying to I do would, their presentations. Yes. And and since I'm a bit of an enabler, all I would be doing the entire time is trying to drag everyone at our table into our immaturity. <laughs> and you, we'd be talking crap about the couples that were up I there trying to tell stuff. us that they have these perfect yes, marriages. I would be trying to say things yeah. at the worst possible time under my breath. Oh, it would just be bad. To see. I, now I want to go. We would be kicked out. No, one hundred percent, Daniel MacArthur. We would be kicked out. We would I doubt it. We would be given half of our no, money back. They they want their money. Over two million couples have gone through this program. And how many of them are divorced or killed each other? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I should have looked that up. I'm going to look that up for next time. Okay, for sure. But it must have been awesome because the Gores came back from their weekend retreat, renewed and refreshed. Of course they, they did. They even began having adult aerobics again. Yeah, but okay. What? All right. If you go away anywhere, stay in a hotel and you have an aerobics class together, you're going to come back renewed and refreshed. How do you know they were banging in their hotel room and they weren't just taking this very seriously? Oh, they were. Okay. So they were just staring at each other yes they were writing things in a notebook they were writing notes to each other about how much they loved each other and things from their past and they were getting all super like intimate right but not sexy time but not doing okay no that's possible if i went away for one night i would come back renewed and refreshed too probably away from kids yeah especially a baby right holy cow i would come back I would come back a totally different person. Yeah. Well, now we need to bring it down a little bit. Oh, good. We need to discuss Betty's autopsy findings. Fun. This is going to be very graphic and brutal. So okay. I'm just warning y'all my Texas accent. Yeah, it's almost spot on. <laughs> spot on? Yes. You sounded very English when you said that. It's very spot on. Okay, now to get Serious. Serious. And to move. I got to move. Hold on. Are you going to the other cheek? Yes, I'm going to the other cheek. Okay. So you were sitting on your right cheek. Now you're on your left cheek. Mm -hmm. Can we not draw attention to my butt problems, please? You're very cheeky. Betty's body was laid out in front of the medical examiner. He immediately noted that Betty's murder looked like overkill and that the murder weapon used, an axe, was thought to be a weapon of passion. No semen was found on Betty, nor did she show signs of sexual assault, which is good. I, In this horrific yeah, situation, I mean, I, I, at least that didn't happen. I guess that's a thing to not find semen after a horrific axe murder. Yeah. Ugh, gosh. I, can't, I, I would be shocked if you would have a destroyed body by an axe and semen. All, But what do I know? Yeah, we're not medical examiners. We just play no. one on TV. Right. She had three wounds on her lower right thigh that looked like they had been done when she was already on the ground. Her left leg had abrasions and axe wounds as well. 
Betty had abrasions and open wounds on her hands, which are defensive wounds. Mm -hmm. So she was trying to get that axe away from whoever had it. Right. On Betty's right arm, she had sustained five slash marks that were not very deep, but her left arm had five very deep gashes, two that were horizontal. Gotcha. Okay. This is horrific. It's awful. Now we're going to go to Betty's head. Oh, good. Half of her face was just tissue and blood. Her eye socket and cheekbone were so fractured that her eyeball had fallen back into her sinus cavity. That's significant. It took hours, but the medical examiner was able to reconstruct Betty's face and realign those bone fragments. She had six vertical blows to the right side of her face after she was down on the ground. Oh, so someone was just wailing on her after she was already down. Yes. They were parallel and very deep. Oh. Possibly done after she had died. But the three horizontal blows done to her left side were of varying size, which means that she was moving. There was one large gash on the very top of Betty's head, almost from ear to ear. This was made by seven blows. They were so deep and had so much force that they penetrated the skull and went all the way into the cranial vault. The gashes in the cranial vault left openings for her brain to seep out onto the linoleum flooring. Holy crap. When Betty's body was rolled onto her stomach, the examiner found three more deep cuts across the back of her head. Two of the cuts were squared off, which meant that the murderer wiggled the axe back and forth to remove it from the bone, like you would do if an axe got stuck in wood. So all I'm imagining and picturing right now is the very few times that I chop wood, because we don't have a fireplace, because we live in Bakersfield and it's hot. <laughs> that, that is horrifically bad. It's brutal. It's just... I know. It's a lot of work, too. It's a lot Someone's of work, swinging a sure. effing axe, just crashing it into this poor woman. In a small room. Yeah. This room was only 12 feet by 6 feet. And this happened in that room. Someone had an axe to grind. (laughs) Sorry. Not best timing. The third wound was deep into her cerebellum, which by itself could be a cause of death. But the saddest and most disturbing part is that almost all the axe wounds were done while Betty's heart was still beating. Betty was aware of what was happening to her for most of those blows. Damn. The examiner also found strands of hair in her right hand and on the bottoms of her feet. Betty had half a fingernail missing on the second finger of her left hand. And remember, police had found half a fingernail on the living room floor. And it was assumed to possibly belong to Betty. But according to the examiner, it was too small to be Betty's. Could this be the physical evidence they need to track down the killer? Okay, so if the fingernail's too small, does this mean it's someone young? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, right? Good I mean, question. I, I don't know. No. Actually, what I was thinking was that she was being drugged mm. and she had her fingers out mm. trying to keep from being drugged into the room. And so right. like one of her fingernails ripped off or something. Oh, right. But the murder... Only took place in this room. Okay. Nowhere else around the house. Okay. 
the blood that was found around the house was from the killer walking through the house. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so the police did a search through the neighborhood and talked to all the neighbors. Now, the neighbors had not seen anything except there was a five-year-old little girl who saw a lady leave the Gore's home around 11 a.m. and get into her station wagon and drive away. Oh, boy. And then the little girl walked down to the Gore house because she wanted to play with the Gore's oldest daughter. Okay. And she knocked on the door. Nobody answered, but she heard the little daughter crying in the house. Oh. Mm-hmm. They interviewed that little girl a couple times, and it, all that timing was corroborated by the grandmother who she was staying with. Okay. So the grandmother said, no, she asked me if she could go play with the oldest daughter around 11. Right. Anyways, the only witness was a five-year-old. Okay. That's interesting, right? Yeah. Now, the last person to see Betty alive was her church friend, Candy Montgomery. Police obviously needed to interview her. Mm -hmm. Maybe they could trigger something in her memory, something suspicious that she may have seen. On Sunday, June 15th, Father's Day, Candy sat down for her interview with the Wiley Police Department. She was petite, pretty, and very personable. She told investigators that she and Betty had met at church a couple years before and had sung in the choir together. Candy had even thrown Betty a surprise baby shower before the birth of the youngest daughter. Candy had dropped her children and Betty's eldest daughter off at Vacation Bible School around 9 a.m. the morning of Betty's murder. The eldest Gore daughter had spent the night with the Montgomerys the night before. The children wanted to have another sleepover that evening. The Montgomerys had promised to take their children to see The Empire Strikes Back... (laughs) And decided it would be fun to take the Gore's daughter as well. Candy knew that Betty's oldest daughter had swim lessons that afternoon. At 9.45, Candy left church and headed over to the Gore residence, arriving around 10 o'clock. Betty answered the door and let Candy inside. Betty had just put the baby down for a nap. Betty offered Candy some coffee, but Candy said no thank you. She was in a hurry. Betty agreed to let Candy take her daughter for the rest of the day. She grabbed Candy, the daughter's bathing suit, and a towel and some peppermints, since that's the only way the daughter would put her face down in the water at swim lessons. So Candy got candy? Yeah, Candy got some candy. The friends had some pleasantries, and Candy left. The interaction was less than 15 minutes. After Candy left, she headed to Target in Plano, which was about 20 minutes away, but realized her watch had stopped at 10.15, and it was really 11.05. Uh Uh-oh. By the time she got to Target, it was 11.05. So if she had gone inside, she would be late for a luncheon that the church was having at 11.30. Oh, you can't be late for those. No. She turned around and drove back to the church. The kids were inside watching the end of a puppet show. When VBS and the luncheon were over, Candy took the kids to the local Walmart to buy Father's Day cards. She then drove the Gore's daughter to her swim lesson and brought the children home to rest before the movie started at 5 p.m. Candy, her husband Pat, and the three kids watched the movie and headed home for the evening, Alan then calling their house around 8.30 p.m. to ask if Candy had heard from Betty. That was it. That's all she knew. Wow. 
Candy was asked what she had been wearing that day, and she answered, a burgundy blouse and blue jeans with blue tennis shoes. She was asked if the tennis shoes had rubber soles, to which she answered yes. Investigators had found shoe prints in the hallway and needed her to bring those shoes back in for analysis so they could rule out Candy's shoes and hopefully tie the shoe prints in with the killer's footwear. Gotcha. So they had to check everybody's shoe that had been in and out of the Gore's home in the last couple days. Right. The interview lasted an hour and a half, and then Candy went home. Okay. Do you have any questions about that? Uh, that was a lot. That was a lot. And she knew. She knew her stuff. So she, she gave did, them a very detailed description. Church, swim lessons. Right. Walmart. But she also told them that she didn't see anything. She saw no one lurking around, nobody suspicious. She didn't see anything. And Betty just seemed normal and just kind of, she also said Betty had been sewing clothes and she was sewing new clothes for them to take on their European vacation. Okay. So she was kind of busy getting the house ready and packing and stuff like that too. So allegedly shortly after her visit to the house, then if you use the little the little girl, the five-year-old girl's testimony. Shortly thereafter, she saw a woman leave the house in a station wagon, right? And mm-hmm. then she went to the door, no one was home, and she heard the baby crying. Right. Okay. At 6 a.m. on Tuesday, June 17th, only four days since Betty was murdered, a call came into the office of Chief Royce Abbott of the Wiley Police Department. On the line was Alan Gore. I did have an affair, said Alan. Oh, said the chief with Candy Montgomery. Oh, gosh. I mean, how can you pass up candy? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call motive. Yeah. And that is where I'm going to leave you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're going to leave me hanging as well as everyone else? I'm leaving all of you hanging. I have to, you guys. This case is so big and there's so much information I cannot leave anything out. Okay. So we will be back with part two as soon as we can. Fine. I know. It's a good one, right? Dang. Okay. Well, what do you think of the case so far? I can tell this is going to be insane. There is so much to this case. I don't think we've done one that's this brutal of a murder. And it gets crazier. Your brain is going to explode. All of your brains are going to explode. Okay. All right. (laughs) Did want to let everybody know that I did get all of my information from a book titled Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs. And this was by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. And this book is really great, but I'm not done yet. So don't go read it. (laughs) Yeah, don't read the (laughs) punchline. Yeah, don't read it. I promise you, I will give you all the information that you need. And you guys are going to be just shocked. You guys need to be shocked along with me. You do. You definitely do. Well, we'll be back for part two. So don't worry your cute little heads about it. No. That's it. Yeah. That's it. All right. Be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. And murder is... (laughs) And divorce is and murder always, is always the best. And murder option. is always better option. We're than we're divorce. trying a new tagline. All right, so start over. <laughs> so be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. 
And divorce is always the better option. Amen. Bye. Bye. Bye.